We cannot change anything until we accept it, said Carl Jung. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. In other words, you've got to learn to look the world in the face if you want it to look otherwise. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 5 Interlude, a conversation on violence with Rav Yehuda HaKohen. Okay, I'm here with Rav Yehuda HaKohen of the Vision Movement. For full disclosure, he's a good friend. But beyond that personal interest, it's time to have a conversation about a tricky and potentially painful topic. I'm speaking about violence and power. And in my experience, there aren't so many people who have both the groundedness in a traditional Jewish perspective, as well as a breadth of knowledge about the intellectual field of the world today, as well as a willingness to take some risks in how he looks at these type of complicated questions. So I'm really excited. Thanks, you for joining me today. Good to be with you. So you are a listener, but just to remind those of us who might not be in the linear flow of the Jewish story, the last few weeks, we've been hitting both directly and from the side on a particularly challenging topic. It's the topic of violence. Had an interview with um, Daniela Weiss, one of the founding leaders of the, the settlement movement. I had a couple of episodes on the Jewish underground, sort of labeled as Jewish terrorists, and it keeps coming up again and again, this question of violence. Plus, I've got to say, I feel a little bit inundated by the headlines lately. that They seem to be speaking about sort of settler violence. You have to say it in that tone, by the way, to give it proper impact, settler violence. More often than not, my wife and I have a running question of whether the violence has actually increased or whether the media has sort of shifted its perspective on that topic. What do you see? No, you live um, on a hilltop just next to Beit El. I'm correct, yes? Right, just north of Beit El, yeah. Just north of Beit El, thank you. Right? What do you see from your perspective? Uh, sort of at a ground level that's happening out there in the settlements. Is the media giving us a fair view of what's going on? Well, well first of all, I try to avoid the S word. Um, I do think that there are Jews who are living in the West Bank uh, according to structures of settler colonialism. Uh, but I don't think it's right to call all the Jewish communities out here settlements, you know, by definition, or all the Jews living out here settlers. Uh, I think that word has some very negative connotations. And even though I hate getting like bogged down uh, and tangents over semantics, you know, that's one of the words that uh, I, I still feel are, are, is worth fighting against. Yeah, I, I struggle because I find that if I, I, I happen to agree with you, nonetheless, sometimes for ease of communication, I find that if I attempt to work around it, what I end up doing is just sounding either mealy mouthed or completely confused. What, right. what would you say is the distinction substantively? I mean, I don't, I don't care about the challenging term, meaning they, I, living here in Malia Dumim, which is essentially right. a suburban outpost of the city of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. right, would qualify differently as where you are? Maybe. Um, I, I think there are definitely communities, uh, Jewish communities in the West Bank that uh, essentially exist as if a UFO just like planted them, they have a gate around them, they have military protection, and inside of that gate, uh, they function as like an affluent suburb. And I think, you know, without any um, really awareness, um, uh, engagement with the world outside their fence. So I, I think those feel like settlements to me, like I feel comfortable calling those places 
settlements because they really seem to be functioning, you know, with full, you know, they seem to be functioning according to a, a settler model. Um, but when you come to a place like, let's say, Yitzar, which is a Jewish village near Shechem, uh, that's often, you know, demonized for violence against Palestinians or foreign activists or whatever, um, I, w- I wouldn't call that a settlement. I think they're, they're structured differently. I think the way they exist is different. Um, and they don't have a fence. Um, and I think it's much more organic. Um, I think it's much more healthy. Um, the only thing I might want to change is how they relate to Palestinians or how they relate to the state of Israel. But, um, but I don't think, but, but I do think that the way that they're living is much more organic, natural, healthy. Um, I think they've taken further steps to indigenize um, a, a, as opposed to Jews living in, let's say, Neve Daniel or Elazar or Efrat or Alon Shvut. Maledumi might be something in the middle. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I've often attempted to do to explain to people the world in which I live is just is to tell them, imagine you took suburbia and you plopped it down in the middle of a battlefield, mm-hmm. right? I feel oftentimes that that's what we've done. And in, in many ways that in my eyes goes to the heart of this question of violence. But if that's the case, then I think we should at the very least acknowledge that the Jews um, who live in the communities without fences, um, who do sometimes engage in violence against Palestinian neighbors, like, you know, without, w- without supporting or condoning that violence, we can say that because they're, they're not just sub- they're not just suburbanites living inside of their fence in, in like an artificial way, but actually engaging beyond and sometimes having to be violent. They're actually like a step above, like meaning a, uh, like a, a step. Uh, they're more advanced, let's say, in terms of our national development than those who are like within the fence of their communities. I mean, it, it, I don't want to get necessarily the teleology of advance. My point was, is they're more honest, right? Yes. Because the, the question of violence, in my eyes, is part of it, revolves around this question of whether we're at war or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the old saying that the things that you do in war, they'll give you a medal for. If you did it on a suburban, suburban street, they'll toss you in jail. Mm-hmm. Right. That's because there is, or at least historically has been, an understanding that love it or hate it, war has always been a tool of statecraft. It's been a tool of national development. And that I think that you and I might agree, you can tell me if not, that we're a people in process of conquering our land, you know, toward what end, um, with what vision of how we and the non-Jewish residents of the land will somehow come together in that, uh, we, you know, we have, we have visions that might match and, and might uh, diverge. But the piece that troubles me, and this is what I've heard from folks, not so much in Utah, I don't know so many folks up there, but I've spoken to people in Bat'ayin down in the Judean hills, which is also legendarily a place without a fence, which I think right. you right, rightly said is, 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 is an important distinction, right? right? That because the posture is fundamentally different. It's, right. a, it's an outward facing one as opposed to an inward facing one. And, and what I've heard from the folks that I know down there is that, that they are still in the midst of a battle while mm-hmm. those of us living behind the fences have kind of um, decided that the war is over and want to go about our business. But the reality is, is that there is a violence which exists either in the tools of the state or in the structure 
which is what keeps us safe at night. And they choose not to hide behind that, so to speak. So is that what you mean by a little bit more advanced? Well, sort of. I mean, you used the word battlefield. You said, I think it was suburbia on a battlefield. Yeah, that's how it always strikes me. Right. So if that's true, let's just go with that. If that's true, if this is a battlefield, I would say that those who are actually willing to uh, take responsibility, engage it, um, you know, not hide behind fantasies of normalcy are more advanced. I mean, they're more honest. You used the word honest. I think that's a good word. Um, now, that doesn't mean every move they make is right. Uh, now, uh, that's a different question. And, and there's a lot of pieces to that question. But, uh, but I do think they're at least engaging with the reality that most of the Jews living in the West Bank um, are not. Uh, I think that they're trying What's to avoid reality. The reality, the, the reality, the, if you're correct, if it's a battlefield, that, that, that it's a battlefield, that there's a war going on outside of some kind. Now that war, I, I don't know if I agree with you that we're still in the process of conquering our land. I think we, we conquered our land in 1948. We conquered our land in 1967, you know, parts of our land. Maybe one day we'll conquer more land. I, I suggest we figure out the status of minority populations in the territory we already control before we even think, think about uh, you know, conquering anything new. But, but I don't see what's happening now as battles of conquest in terms of it being like national conquest, you know, the land of Israel. I think we have the land of Israel. It's a question of what we decide goes on inside. I, I think we have an obligation to ensure justice in the country. Uh, that includes in Janine, that includes in Ramallah, that includes in Tokarem and Hebron, meaning we have an obligation to make sure there's justice for all humans in this land, uh, but we have the land, meaning right now Israel, the state of Israel is sovereign, really, over Janine. The state of well, Israel really well, is pause sovereign. pause for a second. Yeah. Because, because um, when it comes to the question of sovereignty, yeah. it, it can get quite complex, but, but in our local issue, the phrase of the sort of famed sociologist Max Weber is always my watchword. He defined the state as the, the organization which has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force to maintain order. That's what he said is the sovereign mm -hmm. state. But right now we don't have a monopoly. We being the state of Israel doesn't have, certainly not in Janine. And, and I would even argue not in Yitzhar. It was one of the questions I tried to pose to Miss Daniela Weiss or Miss, I guess, mm -hmm. um, about the question of whether the willingness to break the law in order to pursue what she perceives to be the national aims isn't fundamentally undermining the sovereignty of the state, which she claims to be trying to uphold. Do, are we really sovereign in Yitzhar and Janine? Um, essentially, yes. In, the, in terms of the government of Israel having the ability to decide this morning what will happen in those places, meaning if there is a drastic policy shift, whether we're talking about Yitzhar, Janine, or even the Temple Mount, the Prime Minister of Israel, there's no British to, to fight off in order to take it. There's no Jordanians to fight off in order to take it. We have it. We have the military power to do what we want uh, in these places, Yitzhar, Janine, and the Temple Mount. Uh, it's really a question of how we exercise that and what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what decisions we make, what are the, um, what are the, um, I'm sorry, I'm uh, forgetting my English here. Uh, okay, you can switch well, whatever language works. No, I, I, like, like, what are the factors influencing those decisions? 
You know, like we, we have lots I understand. Of- Nobody else claims the large picture. But let me be specific. You know, Yitar has mm-hmm. gotten a fairly bad reputation within the Hebra uh, Israeli, within the Israeli society because of a repeated clash, which happens not just between the residents of Yitar and their Arab neighbors, but between they and the soldiers of the IDF. Right? right. Once you begin attacking the army itself, aren't mm-hmm. you fundamentally using violence to undermine sovereignty and not to enhance it? No, I, I would even rewind and say that it, that happened before. Uh, I, what do you mean? I would argue, meaning, okay, th- there are a lot of pieces to this, but uh, first of all, I think we should acknowledge that at least in the in the capitalist system, um, the nation state is really the, uh, for the most part, uh, advances the interests of the ruling class. And if and the nation state, we're taught within this like liberal ideological paradigm that the nation state should have an exclusive uh, monopoly on the use of force. Now, I think that that needs to be critiqued generally. Um, but when it comes to the state of Israel, I think there are special considerations we need to think about. Uh, first of all, I see the state of Israel as the vehicle through which the people of Israel, the Jewish people, um, fulfill the mitzvah of possessing the land. Like that, that, uh-huh. there, there's an inherent kedusha in that. Um, I also relate to the state of Israel as uh, Rav Kook did, as Yesod Kiseh Hashem Bolam as the foundation of Hashem's throne in this world. Um, therefore, you know, like, like, for example, yesterday this happened to me. I was, I was walking with a student. It actually happened twice to me yesterday. I was walking with a student and the light was red. I did not walk. They walked and questioned me later, like, why didn't you walk? And I had to explain that, you know, when, when the, um, the, the laws of the state do not come in conflict with the Torah, we treat the laws of the state with the, as holy. Um, but that, was Shabbat, big, that was a big caveat. Right. On, on Shabbat, I walk on red, meaning that well, I, I don't like really pay attention to the red lights on Shabbat because what's, I mean, I, I'm not going to create a traffic incident. I, I, I'm not looking to hurt anyone, chas v'shalom. But, uh, but if there's no cars coming and the light is red on a Tuesday, I generally do not walk. Unless I'm in a rush to do a mitzvah, pick up one of my kids, teach a class, I'm late, whatever, then I might walk on red. But gen- normal circumstances... Like, I, I don't walk on red on a Tuesday in Jerusalem, but uh, on Shabbat, I would walk on red. All right, I'm going to ask you a loaded question. You ready? Sure. Because this, this idea of what we call uh, Dina de Mahuta Dina, that, that the mm-hmm. law of the land is indeed law and therefore has the force of Torah, which we might even double down, as you pointed out here. That could apply in any country. Um, but here, as you're pointing out, that the government of Israel to some degree serves as a foundation for an expression of God's will in the world. So therefore, even something that's seemingly mundane as jaywalking mm-hmm. has a sacred force okay. now. But you point out there's an important caveat as long as it doesn't conflict with the laws of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Now imagine you find yourself um, watching the IDF, the Israeli army, protect mm-hmm. um, Palestinian Arabs as they plant trees mm-hmm. on a section of land that you feel belongs to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Is violence a legitimate response to that, to that undermining of Jewish sovereignty over the land? Um, certainly not in the way you built up the example. I, uh, I, told I, it, I warned you it was pointed. <laughs> right, no, but, but I think that one thing that's missing from the context you provide is that 
this violence among you know Judean teenagers toward the West Bank Jewish teenagers, whatever term you want to use, against uh, Israeli soldiers is relatively recent and the result of, of many years of violent abuse. Violent I mean, abuse of whom by whom? Of uh, the state and often soldiers being the instruments of the state against Jewish, certain Jewish communities. Meaning that um, one of the reasons that I believe that the Jews you're talking about should actually be uh, in the driver's seat of the Jewish people's relationships with the Palestinians, I actually think that these should be our ambassadors to Palestinian society, is because they share many experiences, whether we're talking about politically motivated house demolitions, whether we're talking about police brutality, whether we're talking about administrative, administrative detention, detention. Yeah. right? Uh, or torture, torture for confessions, right? What they call um, aggressive interrogation. Um, right. these Moderate are, physical pressure in that wonderful euphemism of our Supreme Court. Right. And, and I think that there's something to think about here, because, you know, we often hear certain sectors of Israeli society claim that the occupation corrupts. Right. Um, that, yeah. and, and I think I've seen that. Honestly, I, I've seen um, Israeli society uh, desensitize ourselves to certain things because we're so used to, you know, using these methods uh, against Palestinians that eventually we did what might have been unthinkable to us a few decades ago and began using these same um, methods against Jews. I'll tell you a quick story. One of my neighbors here, his son is involved with the group of the, what, what people call the Hilltop Youth. Mm -hmm. um, and was, was, the army came to his door, took him away for administrative detention. His father said, where are you taking him? He said, I don't have to tell you that. He said, how long are you taking him for? I don't have to tell you that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so his father published an editorial in a, in a local paper saying that he was a guest. He thought we lived in a democratic country. Mm -hmm. And and I wasn't going to rub salt in his wounds. So I wasn't going to confront him. But I wanted to kind of say to him, really, you thought so? Mm -hmm. I mean, you knew full well that we've been doing this, using this tool to control the Arabs of this area for decades. And, and mm -hmm. their tools, which you well know, we inherited, at least legally inherited from the British occupation of our country you know, mostly codified in 1945. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it's a little bit shocking to me that people are shocked that suddenly, as you pointed out, the state, when it perceives its interests threatened, is willing mm -hmm. to use such tools against anyone. Well, I'll tell you where I think the difference is for him, from his perspective, not knowing who your neighbor is. And maybe I know that's why I'm trying to be abstract. He's a good person right. who only right. wanted right. to protect his son. So, so I think, first of all, his son is, was how old when this happened? Uh, a teenager. Okay, so a minor though, correct? Yes, a minor. Right. So I, I think where the shock probably comes from is the perspective that, uh, well, without getting into the question of the Palestinians being perceived as an enemy population, not just non-citizens, but an enemy population. That, whether we're at war with them. Right. So, so I think we've been locked in conflict for over 100 years now, since 1920, at least. Some yeah. people might be earlier or whatever. But I think where the shock comes from, from a, um, you know, a suburban parent living inside the fence of, you know, a Jewish community in the West Bank, is that, you know, the, like from a legal perspective, the major difference here is that those Palestinians we've been doing this to, right or wrong, I, I want to leave that question aside for a second, 
technically, legally, they're not citizens. They're not citizens of a democratic state. When things like this, uh, I'm saying that to have citizenship in a quote-unquote democratic nation-state is supposed to grant a human being certain protections. So we can have a discussion. It's the covenant of the state, yes. Right. I mean, we can discuss whether or not Palestinians should have Israeli citizenship. I think that's an important discussion to have. But right now they don't. And so uh, so when these, you know, methods that have been used against a population that we, for the most part, most of Israeli society perceives this population as a hostile enemy population. Um, so w- when tactics are used against them, uh, for the most part, we can, you know, tell ourselves it's justified or assume that the experts, you know, the security uh, officials know what they're doing. Um, But when it's done to a citizen of the state, uh, especially a minor, I think it raises red flags that aren't raised objectively, aren't raised when uh, used against an enemy population. Uh, You know what I'm thinking? What? In a a certain sense, then, that once again, the violent honesty of these youth again without advocating for the use of violence but that violent honesty is once again um the avant-garde it's pushing consciousness amongst citizens who might be willing and able to ignore the consequences of the lifestyle we live when they only are played out on non-citizens whereas mm-hmm. the willingness of these youth to to break the rules right right is, is exposing some of the fundamental structures by which we live. Right. They are antagonizing the contradictions in yes. really society. I want to pull back, I want to pull back the lens for a second but, because I know you're can, a person. Can I just clarify? I just want to clarify yeah. one thing. Sure. I, I want to say that even though that legal arguments, that, that legal argument makes um, logical sense that we should distinguish between the treatment of a citizen versus a non-citizen and uh, you know and everything that means, I still think on a moral level treating Palestinians living under us like this for so long does have a corrupting influence, which makes it easy to treat our own children this way. Yes, I agree. To me, the way I I conceptualize it myself is that sovereignty means, leaving aside sort of modern notions of citizenship and and even rights, sovereignty means taking responsibility for every human being who lives within your borders. And I see these tools as in a way of avoiding the depth of responsibility, that, that it's a problem management perspective, mm-hmm. as opposed to a real engagement of the very messy question of how on earth do we actualize our vision as a people returning to our land and our national destiny and, and, and the, the spiritual um, sort of redemptive vision which, which is driving that while we are here engaged with a large group of non-Jewish residents, if not citizens, right? We, I feel like we've, we have avoided that question about as profoundly as a person can do for, for 50 or really 100 years, like you pointed out. But wait, I want to I pull back just a little bit because I know you're a person that also has um, an international perspective, if you will. One of the questions I actually got from a, a, a listener and wonderful supporter recently is that this person feels that oftentimes Israel is held up to a standard which not only is no one else in the world, no other nation state in the world held up to, but is, is, is frankly a, a downright absurd, which is that our 
right to a national embodiment is contingent upon a level of moral purity, and in particular, an absence of violence, which is simply inconceivable in a real historical process. That every time we're accused of violence, every time that you know the newspapers splash pictures of our youth, you know, throwing rocks or 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 burning tires or God forbid, you know, beating people up, that that it's pointed to as say, see, the Jews don't deserve their land. Do you think that there is a false morality which is applied to Israel out there? And if so, what's its origin? How would you respond to it, specifically around the question of violence? Um, I, I think that there are many angles to this. Um, there is some of it is internal. Some of it is the Jewish discomfort with power or maybe. Yeah, tell me about that. That's an important piece. Right, right. I think that we have had no power for 2000 years. We've been powerless for 2000 years. And now we have power again for the first time. And we don't really know how to use it properly. We're not comfortable with it. I well, think we elevated powerlessness to a moral value during that time. In many uh, some, of, some of us did, right? Uh, in, in some parts of the world, I think more than others, but yes. Uh, and, and I think that part of that also was the influence of, of Christian ideas on Jewish communities. Uh, so, like, well, I, I think that the powerlessness is actually a virtue in Christian thought in a yes. way that it's not in Jewish thought. And I, I think that, ironic, though, that may be from its historical embodiment. Sure, but but I think for Jews living powerless in Christian societies, in, in fact, even victims of Christians um, for so many centuries, you know, it, it, it's easy to understand um, how we were able to cast ourselves in this role of righteous victim, uh, of pious victim, and that there is some kind of a holiness in that, uh, which is uh, obviously doesn't match up to to our ancient teachings or our ancestors, the way our ancestors lived. I think that we are really- In case people don't know what you're referring to, every leader of note in the Bible and for many centuries afterwards was also a leader in war and also a leader of spirit. Right. And and I think that the real difference between Yaakov and Israel, meaning when when Yaakov, Jacob becomes Israel, uh, it's like the difference between the diaspora Jew and the Israeli. And what we're meant to be as Israelis, as Israel, is strong and just, uh, dealing with the difficult world and all of the difficulties of national life and international relations and, and uh, structuring an economy and, and uh, sanitation systems and warfare and everything, and showing that all of that has Kedusha, all of that can be holy. Uh, and I think that's that's difficult. It's easy for Yaakov to be holy in his house or in the synagogue or or in the uh, yeshiva. But I call to, this the spiritual luxury of exile, right? And but the real what, what Israel is meant to do, um, and why we need to be in solid form and not gas form, and in our land. And, and <laughs> I love it. I've never heard that. You that's something you you used before. I've never heard you say that. I love it. Ah, solid versus gas. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way of thinking about right, the Jewish first people. as opposed to I just I, I it's, a, it's a wonderful I like I like physical metaphors. <laughs> Feel free to use it, but uh, but but I think that that's the challenge. The challenge is now what we need to do is to be powerful and just. That mm. is what it's meant to be, and and we haven't figured that out yet. I think um, part of it is because we're uncomfortable with our power. Some of us, you know, what we call the right in this country, often wants to overuse power. 
the liberal Zionists or, or what we call the left, you know, they, they want to underuse it. Um, oh, but I think that Israel, you know, has a pretty consistent track record of overusing power with the Palestinians, or I would even say the wrong kind of power, maybe the wrong kind of power, but overusing it with the Palestinians and underusing power with the international community. Because yes. let's be honest, we, we behave like a herb. I don't know if you know that term herb when I was growing up. I, I don't know. I don't know no. if you want me to. Okay. So can I say bitch? We behave like a bitch on the well, internet. We're going to that out. <laughs> yeah, oh. it's fine. So, <laughs> all right. So, but, but we, we behave. We're subservient. Yes. We, we behave with a lot of subservience and insecurity and whatever when facing the international community, especially the Western powers, um, you know, but we get to be really tough with the Palestinians. So, uh, and I think that I, I, I want to be fair. I think that most Israelis genuinely believe that if we weren't in control of the Palestinian population, they'd be killing us. I think most Israelis genuinely believe that had they gained the upper hand instead of us, we'd be dead. I think that is an, a, a perspective that permeates Israeli society and has some justification, meaning there's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest there's validity to that. Um, uh, certainly in 48, <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, um, and, right. and it's also considering our history, not a question that I would like to gamble on, right? To me, certainly the leadership of our country and in its inception, their driving moral lesson, which they derive from the Holocaust, and maybe even to this day is that when your enemy says they're going to destroy you, mm-hmm. believe them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and I think that, now that we have the upper hand and we have power, we have to figure out what to do with it because we, and, you know, and maybe there's like a little bit of like bourgeois liberalism in the idea that, well, we only control them. We don't wipe them out. What they would have done is worse. Like, I I think that there are different types of violence that communicate different messages. Like I'm ultimately, I, I do define reconciliation with the Palestinians as an objective of Jewish liberation for this generation. So I, I'm interested, I'm invested in Jewish-Palestinian reconciliation, but I want it to be done right. And I think that there are, um, there are, way, like, there are situations where one has to be violent. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not naive. I know that violence is sometimes necessary. But in those circumstances, you know, sometimes we have a choice between using the type of violence that reinforces a, a lot of the negative assumptions about us uh, versus using a different style of violence that might shift the way people see us. Like, After this, there's a difference between violence as a tool of control and violence mm-hmm. as a tool for change. Okay, that, that's interesting. But I think there's, there's, for example, you know, violence that creates conditions for a better relationship afterwards and violence that negates those conditions, you know, that, that goes I think the other- that that's what I meant by the difference between yeah. control and change. Right, right. And and I think that a lot of, and and we think, because again, because Israel, Israeli society, uh, because of our identity crises, uh, because of uh, maybe the nature of Zionism as an ideological paradigm today in Israeli society, I think we buy into a lot of Western liberalism and, um, and therefore tend to see the violence of control, which is a very colonial form of violence, as morally superior to other forms of violence that we see in the region. And I, and I think that's something we have to question. So and, and, the Hilltop youth, and the Hilltop youth, by contrast, um, are not looking, you know, when they engage in violence, uh, again, I'm not saying it's right, but one thing I 
I am acknowledging is that when they engage in violence or when the Jewish underground you spoke about in your previous couple episodes engage in violence, that violence was um, much more familiar to the region and much less colonial in nature. Well, I want to springboard off that, but I would note that one of the challenges I see with the underground, um, and I spoke this out in the episodes, is that it was there was kind of two streams there. One was the revolutionary change, the redemptive mm-hmm. even vision, and the other mm-hmm. one was the was the sense of vigilante need to take the tools of violence into their hands because they felt the state had failed in its obligation to protect its citizens, and frankly was trying to consolidate the power of control. But I, w- I want to springboard uh, once again to, to a different intellectual paradigm, which is that in, in, in the introduction to my last episode, I quoted um, France Fanon, who I'm convinced I'm saying the last name wrong, but um, you Fanon. know, so, what? Fanon. Fanon. I, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I can mangle almost any language in pronunciation, trust me. But uh, if people are familiar, um, West Indian political philosopher, a very strong voice in a, what became the post-colonial intellectual movement. Um, and I, I pulled a quote from his work, Black Skin, White Masks, um, where he speaks about um, catharsis, you know, which really in the classic Greek means to purify, cleanse, or purge. And he spoke about violence um, as a tool for liberation in the sense of an internal process. Mm-hmm. That, that removes the feelings of self-loathing and even use false consciousness that have been internalized after generations of foreign oppression. And one of my sources of frustration, again, without justifying the violence of the Hilltop Youth, one of my sources of frustration is that when I look at these young men and women, the Jews, and then I look at the young men and women uh, of the Palestinians, I see both of them in many ways trying to figure out who they are without, with, by, by shedding the structures that have tried to force them to be someone they're not and reaching for violence in many ways in the same way I see my own teenage kids just reaching to push against any structure that tries to prevent them from being who they are. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a source of frustration to me that we're unable to see the attempt here at a revolution to birth a new way of being a Jew. And I know you're someone who... Um, and tries to help people see their revolutionary potential. So I guess as we're sort of winding down here, what I ask you to do is take a minute and, and, and offer your thoughts on, on how is it, either by violence or, or not, how is it that we can actually liberate ourselves from these internalized structures of oppression, really? I mean, as Jews, it, it takes a lot more than 100 years of fighting back into our land to actually become free. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, first of all, just in terms of the Fanon quote, it's often overlooked that Menachem Begin said something very similar in 1944 when he he officially, I would say it this way, when he officially brought the Etzel into Lehi's already ongoing war against the British. Like I, I, I think it's wrong to look at Begin as declaring a revolt. You know, right. I've, I am also guilty of saying that, but you are correct. The Lehi was already in revolution since 41, you know, you could say. Yeah, 39, maybe. I don't, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, we could argue about that. But yeah, we get the point. Either way, um, Begin, the Edsel was late to the party. But um, one thing that... But they came in with a bang. 
one thing Begin mentions in his declaration of revolt is that uh, he says, we fight, therefore we are. Meaning yes. that we, we saw that, you know, after being turned into soap, I think he uses a lot of graphic examples of the Holocaust. And he's saying after this experience, there's something about using violence that is cleansing for us internally. Yes. We fight, therefore we are. And as, opposed to sh- uh, as opposed to saying, I think, therefore I am. Right? Like Descartes says, I think, I think therefore I am. We fight, therefore we are. To me, that's often where I feel... Um, strong magnetism mm-hmm. towards these youth, even though I'm, I'm troubled because I feel in many ways the, that the state is failing in its obligations and that, that, you know, just like nature abhors a vacuum, so does politics. And that oftentimes I, I don't necessarily want 16, 17 year olds, uh, you know, driving the bus on this. Nonetheless, I feel a strong magnetism toward this sense of struggle to be free. Right. No, no, there's something else there, too, you know, because we I speak a lot, at least about decolonization. And I know that that word has been a little bit hijacked and dumbed down in pro-Israel spaces. But I think it's real work. I think, you know, there there is a post-colonial process we need to uh, experience. We need to undergo. And um, and I think that these kids are actually one example, not the only example, but certainly an example of what a decolonized Jew can look like. I mean, they've really, you, you see these kids, forget the violence. I'm just talking about a lot of them are, are, um, are really trying to connect to their land in a very, very, very organic way. Um, the, the styles of clothing, the peyot, um, a lot of them are shepherds, which again, I'm not of this. Oh, you were telling people. me a story about a friend of yours who was a shepherd earlier. Maybe that would be instructive here. Well, well, I, I right. I, I just want to make clear: I'm not talking about pre-colonial mind. I'm not talking about like you know, decolonization doesn't mean going back to the way our ancestors were three thousand years ago. We're obviously wow. moving forward. We have to decolonize, return to our identity within the context of the 21st century, where we are in history. But uh, we're not going to ride donkeys. I mean, if somebody wants to ride a donkey, that's their business. <laughs> right, but everyone should feel free to, you know, use a bicycle or an automobile, whatever. Um, but these kids, and, and I, I think for the most part, these kids represent a subculture that might be threatening to certain elements of Israel's westernized ruling class, not because of the violence. Meaning the violence is a good reason to hit them. The violence is a good reason to to vilify them in the media and, and to make their lives difficult. But I think they really represent a new Jewish culture that's being born uh, out of the reunification of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And now I I have some uh, philosophical differences with them, meaning I think that, uh, you know, I I have, first of all, I don't think that they have to be enemies with the Palestinians. I think that's something that could be, I believe that that conflict could actually be solved relatively easy, but I'm not in charge. So what can I do? Uh, I would point out that you're doing more than most. Baruch Hashem, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, but I, but I also think um, that I have an issue with the way they relate to the state. I mean, part of what separates these kids from the Jewish underground you've been speaking about uh, on your program is that the members of that Jewish underground related to the state of Israel as Rashid Smichat Kulatenu. They related to the state of Israel as uh, something holy, an instrument by which the Jewish people. Uh, fulfill the mitzvah of possessing the land of Israel. Um, and they didn't want to act against the state, but they really felt 
endangered. They really felt that they were being killed, meaning people had been killed. Um, the Begin government, ironically, had failed to protect them, and they felt no choice but to secure their existence by making um, who they perceived to be their enemies afraid to mess with them. They yeah, need classic vigilantism. Right. They need stepping in in the role of the state. But these kids are actually looking, meaning a lot of the teenagers today, one of the areas in which I think they're misguided is that they actually have, they've actually idealized, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, They've actually actually made it an ideal to um, undermine the state. It's in more of an anarchic view. Right. They see the state, they, they, they do not, they see the state almost in the Haredi way. They see the state the way the Haredim have traditionally seen the state of Israel uh, and not as something intrinsically holy. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, so I think there needs to be a real, like, like while I, while I am interested in the development of this subculture, and I think it, it shows a lot of health and i think there's a lot of uh it's very romantic in some ways you know the the idea of jews returning to their land and and these kids growing up strong and free and 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 unafraid uh, even you know even to the point of engaging in violence etc there's something romantic and uh exciting there but at the same time i think that these kohot these forces can be more productively utilized um if they were channeled in better directions so, you know, one of my watchwords for understanding, so you call this a birth. It was, I think, an excellent term, right? The birth of the Jewish people reuniting with, with the people of Israel, reuniting with the land of Israel. And one of my uh, watchwords is that all organic processes are messy. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so maybe we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up on that image that, um, and, and also a call to action is that, you know, every birth needs midwives, you know, and, and, and the more people are invested in, in bringing the Jewish people to their next stage of fruition, rather than simply pointing out the mess and saying, I want no part of this, the more likely it is that what's born will be really healthy, strong, free in its land. And I want to say that personally, I know that you're deeply invested in that process of helping the Jewish people in this sort of revolutionary phase of birth. And I want to ask, where can folks who want to know more about what you think, want to get involved in the activism that you do, where can they get in touch with you? How can they find more? Well, the best place to go deeper into these ideas, uh, into these topics, would be visionmag.org, Vision Magazine, um, where where there are plenty of articles. I have two podcasts. We publish your podcast there as well. Um, Folks got to listen to the Weekly Parsha podcast, by the way. Incomparable. And so uh, that's visionmag.org. Um, and uh, also there's, vi- I'm sorry, that's, yeah, visionmag.org. And also there's visionmovement.org. Uh, where you can check out a lot of our programs. You know, if you are a, if, if you are somebody who is relevant, you know, the, our target demographic, we have programs for students. We have programs for young professionals. Um, we've set up some, you know, young professional chapters that are spreading our ideas in different cities across North America uh, and in Israel. Uh, and of course, we're active on university campuses and with students who are here in Israel. So um, there are many ways to get involved. And uh, so check us out. But I, I think in terms of the ideas, in terms of, of the type of conversations that we're having, uh, it's visionmag.org. All right, fantastic. Rav Yehuda Hakon of the Vision Movement. This is really 
a conversation where we touched, I feel like there's so many tabs open and inevitably we didn't close many, but I do appreciate as always, your bringing of your full self here. And um, if folks have questions, they can also email me, robmikehoyer at uh, gmail.com. You can send me a message on Facebook. And as always, I want to thank some people before I sign off. I want to thank all the folks who give their hard-earned money, help make the show happen, keep it free and widely available. I want to call on you to join them right now. You go to my website, jewishstory.co. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button that says, be a patron. You can click on that to give a little per-podcast support. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountain. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-E-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.